Well, I have to start off today with a story, and, and ironically, it didn't come before Thursday, and so Thursday didn't get this, and so Thursday doesn't get this special, and so you guys do. Yesterday morning, I was out for a run. I decided I wanted to get into a better shape than round, and so I decided I'm going to go, and I'm going to run a little bit. And so yesterday morning, I got up, and I said, I'm going to go get five miles in. And so about four and a half miles in, I was uh, about a couple blocks from my house. I knew I was going to take one more loop around uh, a little neighborhood area, and then I was going to swing back into my house. About four and a half miles into my run yesterday, uh, I noticed out of the corner of my eye that there are two dogs, two giant black labs chasing after me. Again, I am four and a half miles in. I'm not in great shape, and so I have one of two options. Option number one is I can now sprint the couple blocks from here all the way to my house, or I can do what other runners have taught me, and that is stop and yell at the dogs, and they will stop, right? Like that's, that's what's supposed to happen. And so here I am, and, and you can guess what I chose to do. Anybody want to guess what I chose to do? I stopped, man. We're four and a half miles in, right? I'm not in good shape. And so I'm running. I see them. I see them coming at me, and I stop, and I turn, and I yell at both dogs. One of the dogs stops. The other dog continues at me at a slower pace. And so I begin walking, knowing that the road is right behind me. And so I'm like, I will walk you right into a car, dog. And so I'm walking backwards. I'm trying to get out of their way. And so I finally cross the road. I look back. He's not willing to cross the road. And so I'm like, all right. And so I begin trotting on home. And the whole way I'm trotting on home, I'm thinking, I am going to go back to that person's house. I'm going to get in my car. I'm going to drive to that person's house. And I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. Like, that's what's going on in my head. I cannot wait to get in my car and go to that person's house and immediately tell them how wrong they are. About a block from my house, I realized, Ryan, you're preaching tomorrow. (laughs) Probably not the best illustration. Uh, you know, I guess I could preach with a black eye. That would be okay, right? But then it clicked even more for me. I, as I was got into my house and I started fiddling for my keys and trying to figure out how I was going to get back to that house, I realized what exactly I'm preaching on today. I'm preaching on how to respond when you think someone has wronged you. <laughs> Thanks, Jesus. <laughs> get to put into practice immediately what I'm talking about today. Awesome. But isn't that the way it works, right? We, we have this golden rule in life, do unto others as you would want them to do unto you, until something happens to you, right? And the moment something happens, you want to flip the golden rule upside down, and you want to say, you know what? You did this to me, and so therefore I'm going to do this back to you. I'm going to load up my dog, Muffin, and I'm going to your house, and I'm going to give you a piece of my mind with my dog, right? And in the moment, it feels right, doesn't it? But there's a problem with all of this. And the problem with getting back at someone or the problem with getting even is it makes you even with someone that you don't even like. And why do you want to get even with someone you think you're better than? Why do you want to get even with someone that you think you're already in front of or ahead of? Why do you want to be like the person that you don't even like? Anne Lamont says it this way. You can safely assume that God crea- you created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. And with that as the backdrop, we're going to look back into this series as we look through the life of David. And it brings us to the third part in this series. And a quick catch-up for those of you who haven't been here with us, or, or maybe you, you haven't been here at all, let me just kind of catch you up real fast. David was on the scene at about 1,000 B.C. It's about 3,000 years ago, and there's so much extraordinary detail in this story. I would encourage you to read it on your own if you have some time uh, this week to to look it up and to to read into this story. Well, David steps onto the scenes with the pages of history as this giant killer. 
He was a teenager when he kills Goliath and immediately becomes a folk hero. He becomes the most popular guy in the entire nation of Israel. And then something horrible happens. So there's this king by the name of Saul, and Saul becomes very jealous of David because David married Saul's daughter. David is best friends with Jonathan, the son of Saul. Uh, David was a better warrior. He's younger and maybe even better looking. When David was a kid, he got anointed or appointed by a guy by the name of Samuel to become the next king. And everyone knows that David is about to become the next king the moment that Saul's dead. And so Saul has all of this jealousy built up inside of him. And so he chases David out and he begins hunting David so that he can kill David. And that's the lens in which we're going to, to look at 1 Samuel chapter 24 is understanding what's all going on in this story. You've got Saul, this king, who's jealous of this kid named David who's about to become king, and he's chasing him and chasing him all to murder him. And I believe that this story, 1 Samuel chapter 24, is one of the, the, the best stories in the Bible. If you thought the Bible was boring, you missed this chapter. I think that this story tells us so much more about David than even the Goliath story. So if you have your Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 24, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. So let's pick it up right there. After Saul returned from fighting the Philistines, so King Saul, he's off fighting the Philistines, as the kings would do. He returns back, and he's told that David, his, his enemy, has gone into the wilderness in En Gedi. And so the story begins with David in the desert. And En Gedi is this part of the Judean desert. Now understand, the Judean desert is one of the most ugly places on the face of the earth. But right in the middle of it is this oasis called En Gedi. It's absolutely beautiful. In fact, we have a picture of it. And in Gedi, it hasn't changed much since the life of David, since the days of David. There's water springs there, there's waterfalls, there's vegetation, there's lots of cliffs that he could go and hide in, lots of caves he could go and hide in. It's a perfect place for him to look out and see where Saul is to understand how much time he has to go and hide. So we pick it up in verse 2. So Saul chose 3,000 elite troops. Don't miss that. Saul doesn't go get five of his buddies. He gets 3,000 Navy SEALs, and he says, we're going to go find this guy. It shows us that you'll go to great lengths when you have an enemy against you, right? That they'll, they'll go and they'll find all sorts of people to rally against you. 3,000 troops from all of Israel. And they went to search for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats. At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding further back in the cave. I don't know what it is, but as it happened, David and his men are hiding further back in the cave, right? You know the Bible's a real book. This is a unique story, right? Like, nobody makes this up. This isn't something that some, maybe a second grader makes it, I don't know. But here you've got Saul. King Saul says, hey, fellas, I need some privacy. And so he goes into a cave to relieve himself. My daughter's Bible actually says that he goes in there to use the toilet, which I don't know, they had toilets back then, but that's what her Bible says. So he's all by himself in the cave. And it's the moment that David and his men have been waiting for, right? David is finally going to get revenge on Saul. He's finally going to become king. All he has to do is kill Saul. That's all he has to do. It's an amazing opportunity or an incredible test. It's this amazing opportunity right in front of him. Or a test. See, we have to be careful, don't we? That when something that we think needs to happen or something that we are so focused on happening seems to somehow line up with what we look like, what looks like it might be God's will. See, since the opportunity has arisen, it must be the same thing, right? 
David understood something very important. Just because it looks like a God thing and just because it feels like a God thing doesn't necessarily mean that it's a God thing. Here he's got Saul, and all he's got to do is kill Saul, and he becomes king. But opportunity doesn't equal permission. Just because the opportunity is there, it doesn't equal permission for him. Put yourself in his sandals for a second, though. Everything is lined up. He's getting chased by Saul. Saul wants him dead. Now Saul's here in this cave, unarmed, without his army. Everything is falling into place. The opportunity is there. In fact, check out what his soldiers say, verse 4. Now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power. Do with him as you wish. David's men are saying, now's your chance. In other words, what are the odds of this? What are the odds? Only God could bring your enemy within striking distance. It's like Saul is here waiting to die. Please don't miss this because I think it recaps last week so, so well. Last week, Dan talked about the importance of friendships and who you have in your ear is so important. Who it is that's telling you how to live and how to act and how to do this and how to do that. It's so important because as you begin to tell your sad story of how someone harmed you or hurt you, the temptation is for that person to hear the story and to feed the rage and feed the rage and feed the rage followed by revenge. And so David's men are telling him, they're feeding the rage and feeding the rage and feeding the rage. And watch what David does. I love this. So David crept forward and he cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. What? That can't be right. See, again, this is how you know the Bible's a real book. Because any other writer, like if Hollywood were writing this story, it would be an incredible story, wouldn't it? David would creep up behind him and David would murder Saul right here and take over the kingdom, right? Here you have Saul, he's there taking care of business and David sneaks up behind him and takes off a piece of his robe and it makes no sense to us. The guys can't believe it. They're like, what are you doing? You had him, you could have killed him. Why'd you cut off a piece of his robe? You could be king. Verse five. But then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. <laughs> conscience? Your conscience gets you now, David? Aren't you the same David who just a couple chapters earlier, a couple weeks if you were here with us, cut off a giant's head after you killed him? Your conscience didn't bother you then when you carried around the head for a few days. Didn't bother you then. Your conscience doesn't bother you in the very next chapter when you're really hungry and you ask Nabal for some food and Nabal says no and you say, all right, Nabal, you and your family and your livestock, your whole family's going down, Nabal, and you're ready to kill him. Your conscience didn't get you then. Your conscience doesn't get you when there's this lady by the name of Bathsheba. We'll get to that story later. Your conscience didn't get you when you killed Uriah. We'll get to that story later. Why is your conscience acting up now? Here's why. Because there is no such thing as a small step towards the road to retaliation. Every step, even a small step, is a direction in the wrong step. See, by cutting off a piece of his robe, what he actually did is he cut off Saul's authority. See, there was this thing on the bottom of the king's robe that would have served as the authority. The kingdom ship would have been on the robe. It was significant and David, when he went forward, he actually cut that piece off to signify you're not the king. You're no longer the king. He cuts off a piece of that, and then he begins to experience guilt. See, when you really want to follow God's plan for your life, you get bothered by the little things. This bothered him. 
This bothered him because he saw the opportunity for, for progress. He saw the opportunity to take over the kingdom. Let me say it this way. Our love of progress can compromise our integrity. He says, I, 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 can, I can progress and I can become king. I deserve to be king. It's my turn. It's promised to me. And in turn, he compromises his integrity. You ever been there? You ever been there where someone has taken something that's rightfully yours, whether it's that position at work, whether it's that position on the, on the team, whether it's that, that thing that you thought that you earned and someone took it from you? You ever compromised your integrity to try and get that back? That's what David did in this situation. He compromises his integrity. He says, I, I, I could have taken revenge. I chose instead to do this, and it was still revenge. Pick it back up in verse six. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord, the king. Hit pause. Check out the, the possession ship. He looks at, at Saul, not as an enemy. He looks at Saul as his king. Did you catch that? My king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. Verse 7. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. Hit pause again. Did you catch this? He's in the cave. He, he feels remorseful, and then he reprimands his gentlemen. He reprimands his men and says, I shouldn't have even done that. I've attacked our, our Lord and king. I've attacked him. God appointed him to be king, and I attacked him. And then he takes it a step further because his men are like, we'll kill him. If you won't, we'll do it. He actually has to restrain his men from killing Saul. After Saul had left the cave and gone on his way, David came out and shouted at him. He said, my Lord, the king. When Saul looked around, David bowed low before him. Check out the respect that he has for this guy. And then he shouted to Saul, why do you listen to the people who say I'm trying to harm you? This very day, you can see with your own eyes, it isn't true. For the Lord placed you at my mercy back there in the cave. And some of my men, they told me to kill you, but I spared you. For I said, I will never harm the king. He's the Lord's anointed one. He says, look, look. I have this in my hand. It's a piece of the hem from your robe. I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. This proves that I'm not trying to harm you and that I've not sinned against you, even though you're hunting to kill me. Verse 12. May the Lord judge between us. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for what you are trying to do to me, but hear me, I will never harm you. As the old proverb says, from evil people comes evil deeds, so you can be sure that I will never harm you. What a speech. Saul's done in the cave, and he goes out, and he meets his men, and as he meets his men, David races out of that same exact cave, and he shouts, I says, hey, king, and then he bows. And you would expect the 3,000 men that are with Saul to come and attack David. But before they can, David starts in and he begins declaring the truth. And this is so important in all of our circumstances. See, I think the tendency in a message like this is to hear what's going on in the story and say, oh, so you want me to, to brush that under the rug? That hurt and that harm and, and that pain that I'm feeling, you just want me to brush that under the rug? You just want me to, to let it pass? You just say, it'll all work out? No, 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 no. David doesn't brush it under the rug. David doesn't let it pass. David pursues. David's proactive. And he goes out and he says, hey, Saul, why are you listening to these lies that these people are, are telling you about me? Why are you listening to that? I could have killed you, but I didn't. 
See, David's not showing off. David's not being prideful. What David's doing is he's showing Saul his cards. He's showing Saul his integrity to say, you know what? I could have done this, but I know that by doing that, by taking on revenge, it's actually above my pay grade. In fact, the, the writer of Romans says this in Romans chapter 12, verse 19 through 21. It says, dear friends, never, not, not sometimes, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. See, I think we can take one of two worldviews when we're hurt. Uh, we can take the worldview of I'm the center of the universe or God is the center of the universe. When I'm the center of the universe, I try to qualify and justify and do everything outside of God's will. When God's the center of the universe, guess what? None of the logic, none of the reasoning, none of the excuses, none of that matters. The only thing that matters is that God is in control and God will do what God can do. But isn't it true that the hardest part of this whole being hurt, the hardest part of getting stabbed in the back, the hardest part of having all this wrong happening to us, the hardest part is actually waiting for God to do his job, right? Because we believe that maybe God will actually forget, or maybe God will show them love, or maybe God will show them mercy or grace. But hear this, there's a place for vengeance, and there's a place for justice, but it's not our place. God's place. It's easy to hear this. It's another thing to actually put into practice, isn't it? It's easy to hear this when, when the writer of Romans says, hey, don't, don't take any revenge. Never take revenge on someone. You're like, oh, I, I guess. I'll let God do what God can do. Yeah, sure. Here's the truth. Out of 100 circumstances, 99% of the time, I, I'll say, you know what? Yes, God can do what God can do. There's, there's probably one circumstance I just, I, I will lose it. One circumstance. If, if someone does something to me, you, you can do something to me, that's fine. You can say something about me. You can stab me in the back. You can take my position. You can do that. That's all, that's all fine and dandy. I will let God deal with how God deals with it. You do something to my kids, and I'll go to prison. I'm not kidding. I'll tell people about Jesus in prison. I can do my job there. <laughs> you do something to my kids, and... <laughs> It's so hard for me to look at this through the lens as a father and say, yeah, I'm going to let God do what God can. You do something to my kids, and man, I, I don't know. And I'm just being transparent with you because I know that there's people in this room that feel the same way. And then you take it a step further and you realize what God did in light of what we did to God. You look at what we did to God by, by coming to this earth and by sinning, by separating ourselves from God and the way that we live and act and talk and breathe and all of that stuff, you realize what God did for us? God didn't take revenge on us. You realize what God did? God sent his one and only son to this earth to live and to die for you and for me. And when you put that into perspective, the way that God lived and the way that God sent his son to live on this earth, it only makes me realize that I'm wrong. I'm wrong in wanting to take revenge. Here's God, and God is the example by sending his son to live and to die for us. And so with that perspective, I've got two application questions for us today. Two application questions for us to, to, to live out this week, to, to talk about this week in our, our community groups, to talk about this week uh, amongst our, our friends and to actually live out this week. And so here, here's question number one. What story do you want to tell? What story do you want to tell? Is the story that you want to tell, I got even. I became just like the people that I didn't even like. 
See, fast forward 30 years in David's life. 30 years in David's life, he's got his grandkids around him, and all his grandkids think he's their hero. And it's like, Grandpa, 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 tell us about the time that you killed the lion. Oh, grandkids, you, you, you're not going to believe this. I was out there, and I was, I was with my sheep, and all of a sudden, this lion jumped over my shoulder, and he started attacking one of the sheep. And so I looked at my hands, and I realized, you know what? This is all I got, and so I've got to kill this lion because I want this sheep to live. And so I grabbed that lion, and I killed that lion with my bare hands. Oh, Grandpa, you're our hero. That's how they talk. Grandpa, tell us about the time you killed Goliath. Well, I was taking some food out to your uncles. And they were in this battle, and there was this giant who just kept hurling insult after insult after insult at our God. And he was really, really big, but I knew that our God was bigger. And so I took him on. I took some, a slingshot and some rocks, and I went out, and I, I spun it around and hit him right in the nog, and he killed over and died. I grabbed his knife, and I cut his head off, and I walked around with his head for a few days. It was awesome. Grandpa, you're great. <laughs> Grandpa, tell us about the time that you took over the throne. See, revenge is never the story you want to tell, right? Well, I was in this cave, and the king came in. He had his back to me, and he was vulnerable. So I took a knife. That's not the story you want to tell, is it? Think about your own personal situation. That situation with the ex. That situation with your children. At work, when you got passed over, or you didn't get that promotion, or you got laid off, or you didn't get the job that you thought you deserved. Or that business deal that went south. Maybe you lost your reputation, maybe you lost some money from that parent and the words that they used to actually describe you, and you know those words don't describe you. That friend that went behind your back, that coach that chose somebody else, that teacher that didn't hear you out or give you a chance, that neighbor who's always in your business, or that abuse that you took, that's not lost on me. Think about the last time that somebody hurt you. What was your response? What was your response? What story do you want to tell? And it's easy for you. Maybe you think it's easy for me to stand on a stage and go, you don't, you don't know me. You don't know what I've been through. You're just, you're just asking me to be a doormat. That's all you're asking me to do. That you don't understand the hurt and the harm and the abuse that I've gone through. You're just asking me to be a doormat and let it go. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying there's a quality called meekness. It's strength under control. Meekness is when you find yourself in a position of strength and what's revealed about you when you find yourself in that position of strength, that position of power. Let me take it a step further. When you find yourself in a position of power and authority over someone who has wronged you, how do you respond? That tells volumes about what you believe about God. That tells volumes about what you believe about yourself. That tells volumes about what you believe about authority and even, yes, judgment. See, David so we read this story and we continue to go through this story over the course of the next few weeks, David was never a doormat. David was a mighty, powerful king. I think it takes a, a stronger man or a stronger woman to not give in to the temptation of revenge. Let me say it this way. Getting even is predictable, not remarkable. It'd be predictable for David to get revenge, right? It'd be predictable. After all, he wants the kingdom. After all, he's going to be king. And so why not get even. It's predictable, not remarkable. We wouldn't be telling this story today if it were predictable. We're telling this story because it's remarkable. It's the same for you. Is the story that you want to tell predictable or remarkable? We haven't been called to live predictable lives. We've been called to live remarkable lives. 
where people will look at us and say, there's something different about you. What is different about us as followers of Jesus than someone who's not a follower of Jesus? What's different is that we're following and we're living out the way that Jesus would have us live out. First Peter chapter three, verse nine says this, don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. This is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. So let me ask you this question, application number two. What would it look like for me to return good for evil? What would that look like? See, this is Christ following 101. What would it look like for me to return good for evil to him, to her, to X, to the employer, to the grown son or grown daughter, to the parents, to the dad, to the neighbor, to the coach, to the teacher? What would it look like for you to return good for evil, to be a blessing to someone who has hurt you, not to ignore, not to brush it under the rug, but to be proactive, to be proactive. Maybe for some of you, it's a phone call. Not to seek justice, but to just say, hey, I need you to know something. You hurt me. Maybe for others of you, it's a letter. Maybe it's a face-to-face conversation. I know those still happen. What does it look like for you to return good for evil? It's because here's the truth. This is how our story intersects with the gospel story. It's how our story intersects with the greatest story ever told, and that is that God returned good for our evil. That while we were on this earth and are on this earth, we are sinful by nature. And we are sinful by our choices and by our actions and by our words. And God could have chosen to seek justice. God could have chosen to seek revenge. Do you know what God did? God sent his son to return good for our evil. And you think about that time that Jesus is on the cross. You think about how they've hurled insult after insult after insult. They've beaten him and tortured him. They've whipped him. And now they've got him hung on a cross. He's got nails in his hands. And I'm so tired of hearing pastors say that the nails are what kept him at the cross. The nails held him to the cross. Let me say this. The nails didn't hold Jesus to the cross. He's Jesus for crying out loud. If he wanted to come off the cross, he could have come off the cross. The nails didn't hold Jesus to the cross. You know what held Jesus to the cross? Love. Love held Jesus to the cross. And that same love that he has for you, and that same love that he has for me, guess what? He has it for the person who wronged you. And when you begin to comprehend that, when you begin to understand that, you'll want to return good for evil in the same way that God did. See, here's what David would tell us. Don't write a predictable story. Make it remarkable. Because at some point, this is the story that we get to tell. At some point, this is the story that we get to live. At some point, this is the story that will bring others into a right relationship with Jesus. Maybe the person that has wronged you will see who Jesus is because of you. And I get that it's so easy, or maybe you think it's so easy for me to stand on this stage And then I go to lunch and you're stuck there going, but you don't know my ex and you don't know my story and you don't know my dad and you don't know this and you don't know that. Let me say that, I don't. I don't know your story. But please don't ever assume that myself or Dan or whoever stands on this stage ever stands here on our own authority. We stand here on the authority of God. And I hope you understand what God did for you in your evil, in your sin, in your shame. God returned good by sending his son 
to die for you. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that you are the ultimate example of how we need to respond in light of the pain that we may go through, the sin that we may experience, the lack of love that we may get. I thank you, God, that you are the example for us of how to live that out, to be proactive, to not just sit on our hands, but to be proactive and and let people know when they hurt us, to take it a step further, to return good for evil. And so, God, I just ask that for those of us in this room who've been hurt, who've been harmed, who, who are feeling abuse, that, God, we would lean into you today for who you are to continue to give us that example. God, we love you, and we thank you. In your name that we pray, amen.